Hey, Steve. Howdy. How you doing? Good so far. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing this. I no appreciate sweat. it. I've been. I was here anyway, as you could tell. Yeah. <laughs> in previous interviews, three in one day. It's very bizarre. Um, I've been thinking a lot about things I wanted to talk to you about, and I realized that over the course of forty years, you've heard it all, especially about music and production. Maybe not all, but enough. A lot. A and, lot. Yeah. And so, which I totally can imagine is kind of annoying. So I figured, why not talk about things people normally don't talk to you about? Not even like your upbringing and where you came from, because that's happened too. Mm -hmm. But the little things, things that I kind of appreciate about you as a person, such as like your belief in, I wouldn't say being a purist when it comes to audio or being an engineer, just translating the information for the band. Mm -hmm. But where did that come from? Because I know it's a big part of who you are. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it, a lot of my personality, sort of in general, was formed by being involved in the punk rock scene in Chicago when I moved here in 1980. And when I moved here, I saw peers of mine, people who were who looked like me, people that were my age, uh, people of the same general proclivities, doing all manner of things for themselves. Like they would just put a band together on a moment's notice and put on a show in a, in a loft or in a house or whatever. Um, if they were doing a show at a club or whatever, they would organize everything themselves and take their own, you know, take tickets at the door or whatever. There was a, a degree of control that everybody sort of had by default because you're doing everything yourself. You end up setting the terms for everything. And, uh, I ultimately I grew to see that as the best way to do everything and it made me respect all of these people for having the wherewithal to do these things for themselves and also like in that in those circles the weirdest shit was sort of accepted as normal uh, you know like you could have eccentricities as a person nobody would care you could be, uh, your, your music could be like completely unlistenable, freakish stuff. But if, it, if you were doing it with an intent, people would listen to it and take it seriously. And people were given a very wide berth to do whatever came to mind in the way that they wanted to do it. Right? So um, I came to appreciate a much wider range of things than I would have if I had had a sort of more scripted paradigm of what music was supposed to sound like, what the way bands were supposed to behave, the way people were supposed to behave. So, and, and part of that experience, part of being in that culture, was being in the company of squares who did not get it, right? And seeing them grapple with people and things and thoughts and sounds and ideas that were alien to them. Uh, and the, the cool ones would sort of observe what was happening and the not cool ones would sort of react defensively and try to swat things down and try to, try to, to shut things down and, and, and end the scenario that whatever it was that was confusing them. And so I had a sort of an object lesson there in how not to behave 
so when I'm in the studio with a band and they're doing something that I don't get for whatever reason, <laughs> yeah. like music that sucks or, you know, playing that's awkward or ugly or sounds that are ungainly or unflattering or whatever, it's not important for me to get it. Like, the important thing is that I respect it and that I allow them to do what they want to do in the studio. Um, and I have had seen it. You have to understand that in the, in the 70s and the 80s, it was rare for a band to get to record anything. It was like an unusual and a, and a special thing for a band to be able to record something, even in a sort of a semi-professional thing, like just like hauling a four track into the, and some microphones into the basement to make a demo tape. That was kind of an effort. It was a lot of effort and it was kind of an ordeal. Mm-hmm. So if a band went into a proper studio, they were doing it on a shoestring at, you know, usually like midnight sessions, you know, on rented tape or whatever, like doing this the most budget setup possible. And a lot of bands in that circumstance, in those circumstances were not well served. Like they would be working at a studio where the engineer was not part of our subculture, did not understand us or the way we valued music or the way we wanted to play. And so those people with the best of intentions would soften a lot of these bands. So a lot of the recordings of that era were not that accurate a representation of what the band sounded like. That was a pretty common thing you'd hear, like that this, there was this cool band from some other town and then there, a recording would finally show up of one kind or another and it would be unimpressive and their true fans would be like, yeah, that recording is nothing like the band. The, the, they're so much better than that record is. You know, mm-hmm. That was a pretty common rap that you would get and um, and I I saw it in action a few times. Like I, I observed a few sessions where the engineer for my friend's band, for example, with the again with the best intention, was trying to improve things on a session, but in so doing, kind of diminished the band somewhat. Hmm. So um, I kind of made it a point in my professional life not to do that. Mm-hmm. And if somebody showed up in the studio and they were doing something that I didn't understand or that sounded bad to me, my first instinct should not be to to change it and correct it to my taste, but my first instant instinct should be to respect it and try to, to make a, a recording of it that's as flattering and as accurate as I can. Mm-hmm. And I think that served me because it means that uh, bands can come into the studio with me and it's not important for me to like what they're doing or even comprehend what they're doing, but they can trust that I won't interfere with what they're doing, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, be a great translator for them. You know, take what they're doing and just have it properly come through. Yeah, you know, I mean... the stereo. The, for me, the ideal experience as a from a, uh, from a technical standpoint as a session engineer is for me to like go in the room and listen to the band playing or listen to them individually playing and come in the control room 
open the faders and have it sound like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's ideal. Yeah. Because then I know that at a minimum, we're starting from a place of naturalism. We're starting from a place that respects all of the choices and decisions and creative input that they've had up until that point. Mm -hmm. So sometimes do you have artists, I'm sure it's happened, come in and they want something more out of you, like not to just be a great person to translate. Not so much that they want more out of me, but um, that they do want more out of the session than they're capable of bringing to it. Yes. And that's perfectly reasonable. Like, if you want your music to be elaborated on in the studio and you bring a simplified version of it into the studio where you expect elaboration to happen, I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable assumption because that's sort of what happens by default in a lot of sessions. Um, but, I, you know, that's rarely, rarely comes as a surprise to me. Normally, I'll have a conversation with the band about what they want their record to sound like and what they want to do, and I'll know at the outset that what they're looking for is, is some kind of a exaggerated or larger or more grandiose uh, experience than they, than they could provide just sort of organically. Mm-hmm. And that's very straightforward, you know, like if they can describe the things that they like and don't like about their music, then I can help with whatever production decisions they make down mm-hmm. the line. But it's rare for me to listen to a piece of music or listen to a band that I'm unfamiliar with and suggest things. Like, that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find, kind of similar to the first question I asked you, do you find that this mindset of kind of wanting to be, I wouldn't wouldn't say again purist, but a great translator of information, do you find it happening in other parts of your life besides being a recording engineer? Not really. No. I mean, being an engineer in the studio is a very specific set of skills, very specific problems that you have to solve, um, very specific obligations on you as a person. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I see those as being distinct and unique mm-hmm. to the job, and I try not to bring the job home with me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, wh- when did it become, this is a job that I should not take home with me, versus this is a fun hobby passion that you were probably doing in the 80s when it was not as distinctive of yeah, a, a career I mean, path? In the early 80s, I didn't really make a big distinction between any of these things, like playing in a band writing music, recording somebody else's music, uh, helping out with a gig, helping out with artwork for a record, um, participating on a sort of a social level in the scene, Mm -hmm. going to somebody's house for a party. Like, all of these were all part of the same experience for me. It's like Mm -hmm. a sort of a broad experience of music. And it gradually fractured as I I got more involved with – earning a living and my perfect, you know, actually earning a living and paying for my, paying my way through life. I didn't have as much free time. So I did fewer and fewer of these sort of helping out a friend kind of scenarios. But I always managed to find a few avenues to do that. Like uh, right out of college, I had a job as a photograph retouch artist at a photo lab. And that photo lab had big process cameras so they could shoot large sheets of film, which were at the time were how you would make negatives for printing, like printing posters, printing fanzines, uh, printing T-shirts, whatever. All of it started with a big photographic negative. And uh, so I, I found myself doing that uh, in downtime at work or after hours at work. 
like shooting films for people for their posters or screen printing or for their t-shirts or whatever. And that was a way for me to do the same kind of like participatory experience that I had when I was putting on shows or, you know, doing artwork for a band's flyers or for their record cover. Or I, for a very short period, I ran a record label and I managed to put out a few records on under on that label. That was all part of a part of the same experience, but um, I didn't have as much flexibility. The more demands were placed on my time, sort of from by my job, mm-hmm. and eventually I had enough work as an engineer that I could quit that job and be fairly certain that you know fairly secure for the next several months anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. And then I just never had to get it back again. Like I, I, you know, in the beginning I had three months worth of solid work lined up as an engineer past my quitting point. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that three months, there was another three months waiting for me. And at the end of that three months, there was another three months waiting for me. And I just sort of carried on like that. And it wasn't a conscious decision that from here on out for the rest of my life, I'm going to be a recording engineer. It was just like, at the moment, I have enough work to keep me busy and pay my rent for the next three months. You mm-hmm. know? So in the 80s when you were doing all these things at record label, putting on when you say putting on shows, do you mean like... As a p- local promoter. Like got it. I would book a venue, hire a PA, front the money, print the flyers, wheat paste the flyers up on the L platforms, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you do any DIY shows or just strictly at actual venues? I mean, they were all DIY the, to an extent. Like uh, a venue just meant that the venue would let you put the show on there. Yeah, so they, they weren't they weren't going to give you any money. Right, you know, they weren't going to you know. Did you do like more like the, the basements or garages or anything like that? Everything from loft spaces and rental halls. Uh, you know, there was a there was an auditorium, a small auditorium that was owned by the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies Union. They had a, a building called Lynx Hall where their union headquarters were. Um, there wasn't much going on at the Wobblies at the time, but mm-hmm. the, that so that auditorium was available most nights of the, of most months. So I put on shows there. You know, I had to. That was a scenario where I had to bring in everything. I had to bring in a stage, a PA. Wow. Um, there there was a concessions booth, so we had people in the concessions booth selling, you know, soft drinks and T-shirts and whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, I did a few shows like that. That was way too much work. I gave up on that. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. I mean, yeah. between... So you're playing music, guitar and bass. You could play both. You're recording songs. I'm thinking mid-'80s here. You're putting on shows. You work as someone editing photography or the posters. Sorry, what was it again? I would do artwork for my friends' bands, just do poster and record sleeve artwork, T-shirt artwork. I worked... For a while, I worked at a T-shirt screen printing company, and I would run editions of my friends bands t-shirts yeah. after hours my boss said if you yeah if you buy the shirts and you clean everything up you can print some you can print shirts for your friends bands that's fine so i would do that you know yeah uh, and then yeah all of these things you know were you know, and the thing is like that, i wasn't unique in this regard like everybody was doing all of this right. stuff like if uh, I mean, I'll, I'll use as an example the band Naked Raygun, who were sort of were friends and sort of heroes of mine. Mm-hmm. They had a coach house in in uh, Lincoln Park, and there was their basement of that coach house had been they sort of noise proofed it in a kind of a crude way. So they practiced down there. They had a drum kit and a small PA set up down there, and they would practice down there. 
every band in Chicago at one point or another would practice in the basement of the Naked Ray Gun Coach House. Mm. And the people who lived upstairs in the, in the Coach House, Naked Ray Gun, basically just had to put up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because Naked Ray Gun had put together this PA to use in the practice space, that PA was also available to use for punk gigs. And so if you wanted to use it, if you couldn't get a proper PA because you couldn't afford one, Naked Reagan would turn up and run sound at your hmm. at your gig, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that was the the behavior of everybody involved in the punk scene at the time was that you would all you were all doing everything. Yeah. And the same people that were writing the fanzines were the same people that were putting out the records. They were the same people in the bands that were friends of yours. Yeah. They would lend equipment to bands coming in from out of town who'd blown up their bass amplifier in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was all the same people. Like a very do it together mentality. Yeah. And that that kind of all everybody working on the same project, right? Everybody the project wasn't your band or your record or this one show that you were doing. The project was the whole of our underground culture. And everybody was working on all aspects of it at all times. Mm. So having said that, we're talking about a scene of maybe two or 300 people in total in a city of, you know, seven and a half million people in this area. And those people, a lot of them are still at it. And a lot of them, like, they made their bones doing that then and have carried on doing it now. And you run into the same people still involved in the same things around the country that were involved in it in the in the eighties, yeah. you know, a lot of the same people are still doing it. Yeah, I mean that's inspirational. That's great. I mean, this studio and all the work you've done over the last forty years is an extension of that. Again, it's just like the avenue that started presenting itself for you. But you also naturally had some type of mentality for it, like a skill set. I mean, how yeah, else do you it, come it to it? It sort of didn't matter, though. It didn't matter. Yeah, like I mean, I wasn't good as a as a recording engineer. I was very much guessing in the beginning, <laughs> you know, like turn the knob until the needle moves and then just assume that it's moving enough and not too much, you know? Yeah. And then listen to it on playback and find out like, oh, no, no, actually that needle was moving way more than it should have been, you know? Yeah. So like that's that was just my my normal behavior was to just dive in and do things and then, you know, you, you make some ugly mistakes in the first, in the beginning and you... Of course. Over time, you gradually build a set of skills that are useful and you specialize over time. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't done poster artwork in a while. I haven't done any t-shirts for anybody in a while. So Now, was this something that you kind of did as a as a kid? Were you interested in technology or or engineering or anything like that? Was that around you? Yeah, to I mean to a very modest degree, yeah. You know, like I had a I had a Hot Wheels set with a loop de loop, you know, and that, yeah. I thought that was impressive. <laughs> yeah. Know? My brother and I would blow our GI Joes up with firecrackers. Yeah. I mean, to that extent. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't, I wasn't an engineer organically. Like my dad, my father, and my brother were both, enge- both had engineering minds. Mm-hmm. And my, my father and my brother are both, were both professional engineers. Uh, my father, then taught engineering at the very end of his life. And I wasn't. Like, you know, I was I was the e- emotional, sensitive kid, 
you know, I can relate to you on that one. <laughs> so you, you, it's around you. Engineering's around you, but it wasn't part of your mentality per se. No, I mean, I was a dork. I was a nerd, like any, like any dork or nerd. Like I, you know, I got into computer programming when that was a, like the nerd thing to do, you know. Yeah, built model rockets, shit mm-hmm. like that. You know? Yeah, but I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a particularly adept engineering mind. And do you think it branched from playing music? That it, it, everything grew out of being in a band and being surrounded by people in bands and wanting the being in a band thing to be better for everybody. Yeah, all of it grew out of that. Yeah, that seems to be the the case that I've noticed. That's happened with myself, and it's happened with a lot of contemporaries I'm a part of it it starts from like I just want to play in a band and then you go we got to record I don't want to pay for that yeah exactly. so let's spend like a couple hundred dollars in gear and just like start from there oh so-and-so has that mic so-and-so has this you start borrowing kind of like what you were just saying yeah. a lot of that still holds true to this day it's just a lot of gear has gotten cheaper and, and more affordable yeah, I mean I'm I'm envious tremendously envious of the capabilities that people can get now versus you know, the late 70s, early 80s, where, like, a day in a proper studio like this would cost you a couple thousand dollars in, like, 1980. Which is a lot. Which is, I mean, <laughs> yeah. bear in mind, you could buy a new Mustang for five grand, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, like, on an equivalent basis, we're talking, like, a day in the studio is something like $10,000, you know? Yeah. So, so where did you start acquiring equipment in the 80s? When, when did you officially start, like... It wasn't really an official thing. It was more like slowly yeah, picking up I, equipment. I through that whole period, like starting around nineteen, starting around nineteen eighty, when I moved to Chicago, I first took an interest in it. I started gradually getting equipment together and renting what I couldn't buy, and then eventually get to a point. Where, like the first time I had a working studio in my house would have been I bought a house in. March of 1986, March of 1985, and then by the middle of that summer, there was a working studio in the basement. Okay, and that's in Chicago, you bought one? Yeah, it was about a mile from here on Francisco. Oh, so you've always kind of just been around this area? Yeah, I mean, here and there. When I was in college, I lived in Rogers Park, and then I lived in Uptown for a while, and then I moved to... That neighborhood, whatever that neighborhood is called, Old Irving Park, Irving Park. Mm, okay. I don't know what that's called. I'm not too sure. Um, and you went to school at Northwestern, correct? Yep. And and why Northwestern? Why journal, I, journalism? Correct. Yeah. When I was in high school, I sort of idealized the notion of journalism as being this like constant truth-telling force for good. Like, mm. uh, and at the time in the popular culture, there was a lot of stuff like all the president's men. Uh, and my uh, my heroes were the muckrakers, people like Upton Sinclair and uh, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, who brought the Watergate scandal to light, and uh, people like Ida Wells, who were like the muckraking journalists were were a sort of shining a bright light on somewhat hidden or deceptively presented corruption and uh, shit. Mm-hmm. And so I, and then I also, I admired people who worked in, in newspapers who were not necessarily 
investigative journalists or whatever, people like Ambrose Bierce and H.L. Mencken and Ring Lardner, who were just great writers. But they worked in newspapers. And so I made that association between writers that I liked and admired and wanted to read and newspapers. And I thought, well, I should just be a journalist. Mm-hmm. And then the, at the time, the journalism schools of good repute were Northwestern University, Columbia in New York, and Columbia, Missouri. I applied to all of them. I got into all of them. And it, I thought to myself, well, living in New York is going to be very expensive, and that's a long way from home. I grew up in Montana. Mm-hmm. Chicago is also a big city. I bet they have a punk rock scene there. That sounds good. Uh, and it's not as far. So I, went, I picked Chicago for that reason, basically. <laughs> Seemed like Columbia, Missouri would be moving from one college town in a backwater state to another college town in a backwater state. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, New York at the time also had a great punk rock scene, right? Yeah, but I was slightly intimidated by New York. Just like the notion of New York the, in the general populace was that it was this this sea of people conspiring to rob you, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it just seemed intimidating, like to to live in such a big cosmopolitan city. Chicago seemed like it was a like a sort of a midpoint between Montana and New York City. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, New York... I'm, very, I'm very pleased that I ended up here because this was a super vibrant music scene for me to get involved with. Every person that I met in the scene here was in one way or another inspiring. And uh yeah, I, I don't I think I don't think I could have done better than to end up here. I I think you made the right choice, not selfishly at wanting to have an individual like yourself in this city, but growing up here my whole life and being here and going to school here and being involved in the music scene I, I couldn't agree more it's such a great city for music and art it has an insane amount of genres and styles here and it's it's a place people grow up or they, they go to school and they stay here they don't it's not like coming here to get famous like in LA and New York it's very different yeah a friend of mine had a uh, um, when I when I was at Northwestern I had a the way the journalism program was structured, you had to have a fairly extensive series of minor subjects, right? So I had you had to have a technical minor, and my technical minor was chemistry, and then you had to have a humanities minor, and my humanities minor was uh, painting. So my advisor in the painting program was an artist named Ed Paschke from Chicago, who I, is a, a visual artist that really inspired me, and his aesthetic was really suited to the time. It was like sort of synthesizing an electric experience or a video experience watching by looking at paintings that were sort of the vibrancy of the imagery was uh, underpinned by sort of the, the this, this uh, visual style that was sort of pulsating with energy from contrasting colors and, uh, you know, really vivid, bright, almost... Um, fluorescent colors and really big contrasts and um, grotesque imagery, uh, you know, a lot of caricature type, almost cartoonish imagery. So I really admired his visual style and um, I learned a lot from him about uh, the practice of art. Like, uh, and one of the things, he had this theory because he had lived in New York for a while, and then he came back to Chicago and much preferred living in Chicago as a working artist. And his theory was that um, 
there are these magnet cities like New York and Los Angeles, uh, New York for the visual arts and other aspects of high culture and Los Angeles for things like movies and television and other kinds of low culture, um, music industry and that sort of thing. Uh, and he, the way he thought of it was that these magnets, these coastal magnets attracted the people with the strongest ego about their art, not necessarily the strongest talents in the arts. So his theory was that if you're really good, you can be anywhere and practice your craft and people will pay attention because you're good at it and that you are good at it draws their attention. If you think you're good, you might think that you're not succeeding in Iowa or whatever because you're surrounded by all of these fucking bumpkins who just don't get it. Yeah. All right? And so then you figure, well, I'm, I'm going to go to New York where all, they'll, where they'll get me and then I'll be a big shot. And to, to an extent, I'm sure that worked for some people, but the way he described it was that New York was the city of runners-up. Like, the people who were really great, they achieved their success wherever they were. The people who weren't that good, no matter where they were in the world, but thought they were really good, went to New York. And so that's the, the, the dominant personality type in New York is, is these people who, whose opinion of themselves outstrips their ability. Hmm. And that breeds a kind of resentment because while you're there, you're no better in New York than you were in Iowa or whatever. And you're surrounded by people who also think they're really good at it. Yeah. And so you're going to fail most of the time. And you're going to feel put upon because you're in this very expensive place where you have to do all of these debasing, degrading things to make a living. And the whole time you're resenting the experience because you haven't yet been appreciated for the true artist that you are. Like, so there's just these compounding effects of having the, the, the ego drive people to New York rather than some other thing. Mm. Uh, and that's the way he described it to me. I couldn't have articulated it like that. I had spent no time in New York, didn't know that much about it. And, but the, the relative music scenes, like if you compare the music scene in a place like New York to a place like San Francisco or Chicago or fucking Minneapolis, New York was full of very strong personalities, not that deep in the talent bench. Like the bench was not that deep in terms of like greatness. Yeah. But there were a lot of people who were really wanted to let you know what they were up to. Yeah. And, and I think that tracks with that sort of general arc of what Paschke told me. Yeah. Wow. That's, I've like, I've thought that, but the way you put it was much more eloquent. And I, it's such a fascinating thought. It's probably why I, I have a hard time. Like I've visited both cities and I enjoy it and I've done some recording in both, but there's something about Chicago. It just feels so, so genuine and it feels very, very authentic. Well, and it's like, like anything else, everybody's comfortable with what they're familiar, familiar with. Like if I had moved to New York in 1980 instead of moving to Chicago in 1980, then my formative experiences would have been around that group of people. And I'm sure I would have come up with a worldview that was influenced by that. Sure. I'm just grateful that I was surrounded by all of these supportive, co cooperative, collaborative 
mm-hmm. people in Chicago, and that shaped me as a person. And I think it. I think I am better because of it. I think I am a better, more open-minded, more interested in cooperating person mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. So you you heard that in college, yeah, Northwestern. So are you are you playing music and recording and doing all these things in the art world at the time you're in college? Yeah. Okay. I mean, from the moment I hit the ground here, I was trying to put a band together, trying to play with people. Yeah. From the minute I hit ground. And did you find yourself playing in other scenes or working with other scenes, or was it mostly just punk punk rock? Yeah, everything that I was interested in was either punk rock or the music that derived from punk rock, like the underground scene that started with punk rock. Yeah. I mean, there was a large crossover with the queer underground in Chicago. Like, you know, several of the seminal figures in the music scene and in the punk scene in Chicago were queer. And there was a gay couple that were sort of like, that ran Wax Tracks Records. And they were sort of like the the people that got the ball rolling. Like there there wasn't much going on in Chicago until Jim and Danny moved to town and opened Wax Tracks, and then it became that became the mecca. That became the place that everybody would go to hang out and see what records were in mm-hmm. new records that were in from England. So like you know, bass player wanted flyers and all that kind of stuff. Like that that all happened at Wax Tracks. Wax Tracks was absolutely the focal point of the punk scene in the early days. I, I, is, that's not still around, is it? No. no. It was on Lincoln Avenue. It was um, right next door to the Biograph Theater on Lincoln Avenue. Okay. And that, so that's in like the early 80s that happened or late 70s? The, it started, I think they moved to Chicago in 78 and opened the store in 79. And uh, I, I hit town in the summer of 1980 and I was there like religiously every week at least once. And so, when did recording, you, you have all this information, you get out of college, you're playing in bands, multiple bands, I'm assuming, because everyone does it, and you know, in the beginning sure. days, you're recording, you're doing all this artwork, many different worlds, when do you start working with bands you don't know, and it's not just like friends and in your scene? I was just talking about this earlier today, that the first session that I did for someone who wasn't an immediate friend of mine was for a singer named Robbie Folks, who I've gone on to do dozens of sessions with. And he's still at it. He's still cranking records out. He was nominated for a Grammy a couple of years ago. The first session that I ever did for a band that weren't immediately in my peer group was for Robbie Folks. He was working as a paralegal at a law firm called Jenner and Block, along with a friend of mine named John Bonin, uh, who was... And they were sort of buddies because they bonded over music. And uh, Robbie said he had this band and he wanted to do a demo recording. And my friend John Bonin said, oh, yeah, my buddy Steve, he built a studio in in the basement of his house. He can record your band. So that would have been, you know, like spring or summer of 1985, maybe? Okay. I think that's probably 80, maybe 86, but I... I'm very bad with dates. <laughs> I'm going to say 85. Okay. And then, you know, like clockwork, every few years, Robbie gives me a call. Hey, let's do a session. And I end up doing another record with him. I've probably done a dozen records <laughs> with Robbie Folks over the years. It's, it's, it's so cool when you establish a relationship with certain artists and not just the work you get from them, but the work they pass on to you from other bands, the, the good word they put in for you, you know? Yeah, I mean, they're, the only... 
the only real the only real influence that you have is you know the experience that you can share with other people right like if you have a bad experience with somebody and you can warn somebody away from them that's as good as a positive recommendation for somebody else ah uh, yeah hang on one second sorry to interrupt no um your files are there um for some reason i couldn't log in with your credentials but you were logged in over here so i made it work so one day i'll have to ask you about that again okay for now, you've got links. Uh, I tested them. They work for the folders. Everybody's got full access. All singing, all dancing. Excellent. Yeah. Thank and you very much. Yeah. Are you in tomorrow? What day is tomorrow? Thursday? Thursday. You don't have anything. No. Tomorrow, I don't believe I do. Okay. Uh, I think we're just waiting on you to confirm Friday morning at 930. I'm in. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll tell everybody you said you're in. Okay. All right. Awesome. See you on the internet. Yeah. Um... So yeah, you're recording, you're saying that hearing that something or someone isn't good to work with is just as good as hearing they are. Yeah. Because it could now put you into maybe the, possibly the right avenue with someone who might be better to well, work the, with. Well, the main thing is that you, you only have so many bullets when you're in the, you know, in, the, in operating on the, on the outside of the mainstream music business where you're not being underwritten by anybody else. You don't have any corporate entity that has a, a, a budget for you. You're spending, literally, spending your rent money on this artistic endeavor. You only have so many bullets and you can't waste them. Yeah. So if you do a session with somebody and it sucks and you can't do anything with it, it's worse than, it's, than just that it sucks. It's that it's, you've wasted the resources that you could have used to do something of value. Mm -hmm. It's worse than just having the bad experience it's having the bad experience and also not being able to rebound or recoup that with a, another later good experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's happened to me enough times to learn not to let that happen, not to do that. And that's, I mean, that's such interesting. That's one of the things that I liked about the close-knit quality of the underground music scene in Chicago was that everybody had a take on like who was good to, de to deal with, who was bad to deal with. Mm -hmm. Like one, one example, like, and it was always about sort of major expenses. So major expense would be buying an amplifier, buying a guitar. There were some music shops that you knew if you went in there, you were going to get scalped. So you just didn't go into those shops. Let the suburban parents come in there at, to buy Johnny's first guitar and let them get scalped. Yeah. You know, um, there would be some equivalent thing like that for, say, a sound company, sound hire company. You, you're putting a gig on in a bar. You're expected to provide a PA, sort of going rate for a one-night PA set up and operated was two or $300, depending on who was doing it. Mm -hmm. So everybody had the phone number of the best $200 guy. Yeah. And then the second best $200 guy. <laughs> And then the last resort two hundred dollar guy, you know. Which guy were you? I didn't do live sound. Oh, you stayed away from that. Yeah. Um, or if I did, I would be doing it for free as a as a fourth resort. Fourth resort, maybe just doing a favor for a friend that. Of course, yeah. gives you something in return. Did you did a lot of that currency? Where favor for favor, favor for favor. No, I mean, it's often it's often described that way as one hand washes the other in a sort of capitalist sense. But nobody thought about it like that. Nobody ever thought about it as, I'll trade you this 
favor for that favor. No one ever, right. it wasn't a transactional existence. It wasn't capitalistic in that way. And I think that also, that was one of the things that created a sort of a, what I consider a healthy suspicion of capitalism uh, in my mind. It, and, it, and it's put me in the frame of mind where I don't treat people like that for any reason. Yeah. Like a lot of people frame all of their interactions in these kind of transactional ways. Like, uh, you know, the old lady isn't as horny as me, but uh, I let her go shopping on Sundays, so Saturday night's my night. You know, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. These, there's this, like, there's this, you, you manage the world by, with these capitalist notions of trade, you know? Yeah. And, I find that whole idea reprehensible. Like, if I'm, if you need help with something, I should be helping you because you need help. Yeah. It's not that I should only help you if in helping you I can create a debt obligation that I can then call in later to my be ultimate benefit. Like, yeah. that, to me, that's just a reprehensible way of thinking about people and things and behavior. Yeah. And I, I just don't, I don't think that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's something that is hard to explain to people if you're if they don't practice it. If that's not something they grew up doing or don't do naturally, something yeah. that I mean, feels it, right to them. Everyone it seems to be encouraged to treat everything like a transaction, and I I feel like that's a, a corrupting influence. I feel like that's like, and it manifests in a bunch of different ways. Like, you know, like somebody somebody needs to take a day off, so they need to get their shift covered, right? Somebody else remembers that they covered for you once already, so you owe them one, so they're not going to do it. Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. It's just keeping a balance sheet on everybody and trying to keep the books balanced and trying or trying to turn a profit on your relationships. Like that just, that just galls me. And I, I, whenever I think about operating in the world using that kind of, using those kind of metrics and that kind of thinking, it makes me think less of the people that engage in that regularly. It makes me feel like those people are less than fully human mm. because they're not engaging with people on a human level. They're trying to reduce them to a kind of a, uh, an, a model of an economic model of, of behavior, economic behavior. Like they're trying to, trying to make everything into a market and trying to make everything uh, a trade. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, I, I'm that 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 whole thing just galls me. Yeah, and I mean that's something that you've been strict with and, and and true with. I mean, have you found yourself passing up certain opportunities in your professional world because of that mentality, or you maybe you don't even realize you just don't care? Uh, I don't. I don't turn down paying work often. Right. Um, it's happened a very few times when there was some external reason for me to be suspicious of the session where like the session sounded sketchy and it seemed like the money that was being offered wasn't real money, like uh -huh. that sort of thing. I have taken a powder and, and been ultimately glad that I did for some scenarios like that. Um, or when the people involved are, are notorious for one reason or another and I just don't want to expose myself to that kind of notorious problem. Mm -hmm. 
when in the earlier days, was there any specific record that got your name out more? Something that brought you, you noticed like, oh, more work is coming, more people are noticing or, or want to work with me. Anything uh, in particular happen? Or was it just a slow, gradual thing? Very gradual. I do recall I have been out of work on a professional basis for, by professional basis, I mean, I quit my job um, for about nine months, I want to say, when I got a call to do the Pixies record that I did. Um, and that was the first time that a band had been sent to me by a record label. How'd they hear about you? If you were the band were were unfamiliar with me. This is Surfer Rosa. Yeah. Okay. The band were unfamiliar with me. I think they educated themselves by listening to some records or whatever once my name came up, but I was kind of foisted on them, to use a Larry David term. I was kind of foisted. <laughs> uh, and the foist came from uh, Ivo Watts Russell, who was the guy that ran their record label, their English record label, 4AD. And at the time, my band Big Black was more well-known overseas than it was in the U.S., more mm -hmm. well-known outside of Chicago than in Chicago, more well-known in the underground than the mainstream. So it makes sense that this band from Boston who were sort of conventional, normal people, not deeply embedded in the underground music scene, just normal people, they would, it makes sense that they would not be that familiar with me. And it also makes sense that their English record label guy would be familiar with me right. since he worked in the independent label scene in England, which was a much bigger deal than in the U.S. at the time. Yeah. And then he, you know, he foisted. And uh, they, we got along. We had a couple of conversations prior to me flying out there. And, you know, we talked over the kind of record they wanted to make. And uh, I did what I could. They were a very good band at the time. They were, like, they were very well rehearsed and they had their shit together. Their aesthetic was very strong. Like they knew what they wanted things to sound like. Yeah. And I did, I think I did influence that session more than I would now. For example, um, there were moments in their music where the guitar was meant to sort of blow up and get big. Yeah. But they were using these kind of dinky practice amps, uh, kind of modest equipment. And I, I, so I suggested, you know, for these big parts, why don't we rent a couple of Marshalls and have you guys play like a, just a bigger sound? And they were into that idea. So we did it, but it definitely came from that idea came from me. Yeah. And so I like, that's a, that's more of an intrusion into the aesthetic of the band than I would be comfortable making now. No, yeah. More just of a curious mind back then, just trying to uh, like... I think it was more, I just wanted to prove my, my worth. Oh, uh, like, yeah. Like, it was one of the first records I'd done for people that weren't friends of mine already. Right. And... That's crazy. It's only a couple of years into doing this. Yeah. and That's why. I, I, I think I wanted to have an influence on the record, and I wanted that influence to be, to make it seem like it was worth paying me. Yeah. Otherwise, you know. Well, I think I you did that. I didn't want them to feel like they were wasting their money, basically. It wasn't that much money, but it, it was enough that it was like, you know, that's a month's rent for somebody. I don't, yeah. wanna, I don't want them to like feel like they just blew it, Yeah. right? So I was probably outside of my lane more on that record than I was on any record subsequently. Mm. 
I mean, it, I would say it's a good thing you were because it seems like that record got you a lot more work in life. Uh, it, I mean, to an extent, it, over time, it's definitely been recognized as a good record. And I, I, at the time, I thought it was a good record. I thought they were a good band. Um, not like from a musical standpoint, not 100% my cup of tea, but yeah. I was impressed by Charles as a songwriter. I was impressed by the band, the way the band played together. I was very impressed by Kim Deal as a singer, and I thought her melodic sense was really great and unique. Um, but I, I, I think it was sort of rookie behavior on my part, mm -hmm. a lot of it. Um, and you know, I can't say that I made the record better. I know that the record is different than it would have been otherwise, Yeah. but they were, like I said, they were a good band yeah. and the previous record, the dem their, their demos and their, the LP that came out previously, Come on Pilgrim. Like those were both solid, yeah. and I had nothing to do with any of that. Like, and they're very similar, very much of a type, with their first album. Yeah. So, I can't really take any credit for that band being good. Right. You Just know? the right people hear it, and your name's associated with it, so they reach yeah. out to you. You know, and I've gotten a lot of credit over the years for records that were good, that would have been good no matter who was in the engineering chair. Yeah. You know? Any of any ones you care to mention? Like I, I did a bunch of records with the Jesus Lizard. Yeah. They were an absolutely impeccable band. You know, fantastic musicians. You know? And I did a bunch of records with them because they we were friends and we were in the same peer group and it was easy and facile facile facile? Facile. I don't know. Anyway, it, was easy. <laughs> it was easy for them to work with me because I under, I knew them already. We could communicate as peers. Yeah. And I did a good job on those records. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not, I'm proud of having been associated with those records. But if you listen to the record, they did a record immediately afterward that was uh, another guy, another engineer with completely different aesthetic, completely different working methods. And that record's just as good. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's there's nothing magic about me working on those. When a good band goes into the studio to make a record, it's going to be a good record, You're right? You know, and I got I've gotten a lot of sort of the way I described it once was that like whatever glow I feel about having done a good job on these records, it's ultimately it's reflected light from somebody else being really fucking brilliant, you know? Yeah, and that's true every time I make a record, if the record comes out great. You know, the best that I can say is that I didn't impede that that performance. Yeah, I that's I love that philosophy a lot. I, I try something that has only like always made me intrigued by you as an engineer has been feeling that way before I even heard about your music or realized the records you worked on that I grew up listening to, the movies they were in, things like that. And being like, man, I really like the sound of this. It's it just it feels like it's just translating what the band already can do in a very pure and and transparent way, like a very nice way, not polished, not all those other things going on. Like the biggest one that I always enjoyed, and I know it's a big one, but it's it, I just grew up listening to it. Are the three Nirvana records, mm -hmm. and you hear Nevermind, and you're like, this doesn't make sense for this band. It's just it's too much. It's too crisp. It's too produced. It's too big of a budget. Mm. And I hear in Unirol, I'm like, this sounds like how the band always 
would be playing. How they very raw, very straightforward, um, and very honest. Just very honest. Well, I mean that it's nice that you say that. I try not to be critical of other people's recordings, um, and I know there was the Nevermind record was recorded with Butch Vig, right? Who was the go-to guy in the Midwest at Smart Studios uh, for all the bands in Wisconsin, like all the Milwaukee and Madison bands and a lot of Chicago bands Mm -hmm. would make the trip and some bands from Michigan would make the trip to Madison, Wisconsin and record with Butch. And he did a great job on all of those records. Like if you listen to any of those records that he made in the mid-80s, the Killdozer records, uh, Laughing Hyenas records, Decroitson, any of those, the appliances who were like local heroes in Madison. If you listen to any of those records, they're impeccable. Mm-hmm. You know, they sound like the band. They're energetic and powerful and clean. And, but they, the energy of the band and the enthusiasm that the band felt for their own music, like you can, you catch their mania from those records, mm-hmm. right? And that's the sign of a very good engineer. And I think Butch is an excellent, he's a master engineer. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think the recordings that he did for those bands captured those bands perfectly and let me hear what they were trying to do, right? That's the whole job. So I'm confident that the record that Butch made with them reflected their intentions. Mm-hmm. They were told by their label as a condition of their record being released that it would have to get mixed by a professional mixer if Butch was going to record it. Because at the time, Butch didn't have much of a CV. He didn't have much of a a credit list. And so they had a, a, a professional mixer mix that record, Andy Wallace, and they picked him literally because he had done a Slayer record and they were like, well, that's as near as we can get. Yeah. So let's have him do it. Yeah. Unfamiliar with his music, you know, uh, any of the other pop music that he'd worked on, just he did a Slayer record. So let's let's give him a spin. And the the final result is quite a bit more polished than the records that Butch was making when left to his own devices. Got it. So uh, I'm not making excuses yeah. for that record. I'm saying that the that record reflected the band's aesthetic and it was obviously hugely successful. Yeah. So I'm not second guessing their success. But I did get a chance to hear when the when I was working with Nirvana at, on the In Utero record, they had a cassette dub of the rough mixes that Butch had made of this basic, of the original session for Nevermind. Like he had made a session, he made a mix for them to listen to so they could hear their work. Yeah. And that cassette was what they referred to within the band whenever they wanted to listen to those songs. Uh, the final released version was obviously the final released version, but that one was sort of an afterthought as far as they were concerned because the session that they did with Butch was the whole show. Mm. And I did get a chance to hear that cassette. They played it in the studio, and I thought it sounded fantastic. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I would imagine that by now that version has been released in some form or another. Like, I'm sure that it's kicking around somewhere, yeah. like some record store day release or something. There's yeah. got to be a version of it out there. That sounds like something that would happen now for extra money. Did something, did something, I think I read this somewhere, did something similar happen with the mixes for In Utero? That, no. 
No, so you mixed it and they kept we, that version? We mixed the record. We did the, recorded and mixed the record in one session. Then they took it back with them to Seattle. Kurt spent some time listening to it and had a couple of reservations on his own. And he, the band wanted to remix a couple of songs. I didn't want to get involved in it because I thought that it had the risk of sort of cascading into a thing where we would end up having to redo the whole record. Right. So... I said, look, if you want to remix some of these songs on your own, you have my blessing. It's none of my business. It's your record. You should do what you want. Yeah. I feel like I did the best I can, and I, I'm, I'm my, I should be done with it. So they re remixed a couple of songs. I think a backing vocal was added to one song. I'm not sure about that. Uh, and, and then the the final record that went into the store was. The, mix, the album as we recorded and mixed it, plus these two songs that had been remixed, which were also characteristically released as singles off of the album. Mm. So none of that was completely, none of that was out of line or weird or offensive to me, but it was played up in, in the press as being a kind of a salvage operation uh, because the the record label people and the management people and everybody were not into that record. They thought the record, they thought it was a mistake to make a, a kind of a brutal record like that. And they were defensive about their wisdom and their wisdom was, no, 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 you should do another record with Butch and Andy because that one was a big successful hit record since then, we've done a bunch of other records with Butch and Andy, and those have been big, successful records. So we think you should go do the big, successful record with Butch and Andy. And that, and that didn't happen. And I think that represented a kind of a, a, a threat to the, the power structure. Um, and so all the people involved were kind of sandbagging on that record. Mm -hmm. All the record label people were kind of sandbagging on that record. And, you know, it was stressful for me yeah. to have people in the press, you know, off the record saying that I've ruined a record for the most important band in the world. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's, you know, it's stressful yeah. and irritating and, and it, you know, I had, a, I paid a professional cost for it, but I also. Like people didn't want to work with you yeah, after that? Yeah, big record labels is, is specifically told artists that they were not permitted to work with me on their records. Really? Know? Yeah. That I record know, I, did well, though. It did well in the long term. In the immediate term, it, it, it was a bit of an embarrassment to the record label mm. that they had to go through all this falderall. And also, it, it sort of escaped their control, and it was in their best interest not to let a record that escaped their control be a huge smash yeah. or be perceived as a huge smash. So they took the money when they sold the copies, you know, but yeah. they didn't want it to be... They didn't want to be to, to be perceived as a smash. And, I mean, it's all water under the bridge. I, I could give a shit now. You yeah. know, like my relationship with the band survived. I, you know, I liked and admired the band then. I like and admire the band now. It was an awkward period where their record label was kind of scapegoating me. That record label doesn't even fucking exist anymore. All those people are out of music. They're all selling real estate. You know, I'm still here making records every day. I could give a shit. Yeah, you know, I, I mean that's amazing. I I respect that. I mean, you you did what you know how to do. You 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 got that job because you did well with other records, and you've been doing it since. And you're known for just 
kind of like it seems like your mentality of how you treat recording. You also treat it with the ethics of the financial part of royalties of of bands. You not taking anything but the initial payment for what yeah. they pay for your service when they come here or when you might be hired to go somewhere else. Sure. And I've always been of that philosophy too in the work that I do. Um, I don't. Have you had a hard time explaining to people that are like? Steve, you could maximize on this or this or that. I mean, because I get it, and it's annoying. Well, people who aren't deeply involved in the scene, people who aren't involved in music, are quick to have opinions about me and how I do things. Other people who are, you know, versed in how record deals work, they get it. Like, yeah. There are some engineers who think I'm a fool for not taking the money that's being offered to me, but they understand it. They they get it. Yeah. It's like the game is rigged against the bands. Yeah. And if you're playing in a rigged game, one sort of game theory perspective is that you should try to maximize your expectation in that game because that game is rigged. You know, it's not like the band is going to get a fair shake if you do this, you know, martyr yourself <laughs> in this way. Mm. But it, there really is a zero sum game in play here which is that most records on most most major label records are made under contractual terms that ensure that the band will never recoup never on paper at least the the band will be in the hole for the duration of their career right so the band will never see any royalties right operating on that premise you should be fucking them whole dong the whole time because it's not going to make any difference. Like, get every penny that you can get, every, you know, advance from record one, doesn't matter if it's recoupable, they're never going to see a penny, get every penny you can get. That's one sort of game theory way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that a number, you know, I've worked on some pretty big records, and those pretty big records for sure have recouped their costs and are earning royalties for those bands. And Nirvana was certainly going to be one of those. We kept the costs of the record, you know, extremely low, which meant they were in recoupment very early, which means that every dollar that I didn't get in royalty is an, another dollar that the band got. It's just a zero-sum thing. Yeah. If I got a, a point of royalties, that's a point of their income that they're losing. Yeah. Right? And I feel better about that relationship knowing that they are getting all the money that they thought they had coming that there's no that i'm not whoever else is involved might be attaching some money of theirs but not me yeah i feel good about that i feel good about knowing that they're getting every penny of the money that they have coming to them and i'm not siphoning any of it off yeah and that's true for the other you know the big records that i've worked on you know and that, uh, I feel good about that. I feel like that's, yeah, I mean, there's money that I didn't get. Yeah. But also, that money went to somebody who deserved it. Right. Right? Whereas, in an alternate universe where I did take every penny that I could get, and I, could, and I did attach royalties to all of these records, for most of the records that never recouped, it wouldn't have made any difference because I wouldn't have made anything in royalties if they remained unrecouped. Yeah. For the small number of records I did that were hugely successful, 
I would have made some more money, yes, but then the people who deserved it most wouldn't have gotten it. Right. And that, you know, I, I can't feel good about that. No. I, I Coming up in a very hardworking DIY mentality in the music and art scene, and you doing that too, myself and you doing that on your own, I think that's where a lot of that came from, and it has to, because some people I know who don't come from that mentality, who didn't come putting on those shows, cutting those posters, playing the bands, recording for free, lugging gear around, doing some really crazy stuff just to get by. They they don't get it, and they look at everything as a way to make money. How do I, like what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, people not getting it and wanting to make money off you, whether it's a record executive, or, it doesn't matter, but I don't know what it is, but it seems like anybody I know that came up through life in that mentality has no problem with that that moral ground. They know how to just do the work they can do, not try to rip off other people and just be the best at what they do instead of like just riding on the success for somebody else. I mean, it's an, it's another it's another angle of capitalism, which is where, you know, you you're trying to you know, in in the perfect capitalist is completely makes makes as much money as possible, and the people that he's making the money from, he he's not interested in their well being. He's just interested in how much money can he extract from them, right? And that that's a relationship that's fine if you're just extracting from a scenario. But I still f- feel like I'm a participant in the scene. I, f- I feel like I'm one of them, yeah. you know? And what I don't want to do is weaken that scene. I don't want the, the whole of the music community to suffer for the sake of my individual benefit, Yeah, you know? I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a very strict, way, well, it's perceived as being a very strict way to live, but it comes naturally. It seems so fair and right. It's normal in every other aspect of your life. Right. You know, like every other thing that anybody does for a living. Like it, the obvious example is like you need your haircut, so you get your haircut. You know, the barber doesn't get a royalty every month until you get your next haircut, <laughs> yeah. you know. yeah. Yeah, no, the music industry is so weird with, with royalties and people taking the money from it. it I have a, a YouTube channel with a bunch of videos on it, and the second I was able to monetize on it, once you get like a thousand subscribers, I turned it off because I could. I absolutely hate advertising and any company associated with it. When it comes to taking advantage of the bands that come through that I film and record and the work I put into it, I just take the small fee they charge and but everything else they have, I give them the video, the audio, whatever, and I don't make money off the monetization or have commercials. And so many people have asked me, like, why don't you do that? You can make money, like, monetize. I'm like, no. I first of all, I don't want to support the advertising industry or YouTube. I'm going to use YouTube for free yeah. to get this word out, but I'm not going to support money money they'd make off me or the artists that come through. And I just don't agree with it. I don't agree with taking money from something I didn't do. It just forever, money just rolls into my bank account from doing nothing. Yeah, I, I already mean, got paid for my service. I have very little problem with the YouTube monetization for one reason, and that is that I have a thing on my computer that everybody could have on their computer that makes it so I never see those ads. Mm. You know, <laughs> So my viewing experience on YouTube is ad free <laughs> and that's fine you know that's yeah. awesome 
And I, I think as those ad blocking technologies become more ubiquitous, it's going to be odd. It's going to be abnormal for anybody to see an ad mm -hmm. because, you know, literally if you search ad block plus and click download, yeah. then you'll never see another ad. And I think that's an amazing technology that makes the experience of using the internet that much, mm -hmm. sorry, that much better. And so I have no problem with ads being on YouTube videos, either as a viewer or as a, as a content provider, <laughs> because I, I know that it is trivially easy to avoid them ever interfering with my experience. Yeah, it's just the one place where I get to say, like, no. Like, I, got, I have the control of that. I don't want anything to do with it, regardless of that yeah. technology, which you're absolutely right. I, told I think that. that's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, your take is reasonable and, and noble. I'm just, yeah. I prefer having the money <laughs> yeah. and also not seeing ads. <laughs> and as it turns out, I can do both. <laughs> um, what time is it? Yeah, I should probably get going here. Okay, yeah, we're at. Well, in wrapping, Steve, um, I learned a lot about you that I was not able to find an internet. So thank you for being honest and for sharing yourself with me and letting me into your beautiful studio. I appreciate it. No sweat. And uh, yeah, just keep doing what you do. I, <laughs> I, I respect it. All right. On those instructions, I will. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. All right, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.